As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. All right, welcome back or welcome to Throwback Thursday. Uh, I'll introduce my, uh, my, my co-host, I guess, my, my, my guest here. Uh, the one, the only, I mean, I've been watching too much of the Jordan doc. Kevin McKenna! <laughs> Co-host, that's, that's a promotion, I believe. Um, uh, but happy to be here. And, and, and actually, uh, you'll probably point this out that today's actually Wednesday. We're doing this in advance. Um, so we, we've had so much fun with these, we decided to move it up a day so we wouldn't have to wait an entire week to speak to each other. Absolutely. I'm going to do that anyway. Yeah, a little scheduling conflict this week, so we're not live, but um, so, so we'll, we'll miss some of the interaction. We'll miss some of you weighing in and telling us, hey, that's not right, you know, fact-checking right. us, but, uh, but I, I think you'll get the gist. Um, we've got a great week um, planned on This Is Bracket Racing's Facebook page, as well as the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast. Yesterday, you heard uh, story time with Dan Fletcher. Justin Lamb hosted that. Um, so that was fun. Tomorrow, uh, here on the Facebook page, we'll be airing live the interview with Brian Loans that is actually, or not live, re-airing the video version of the interview that I did with Brian Loans earlier this week that is currently available on Facebook page. So if you're, or I'm sorry, is currently, I'm all messed up today. It's currently <laughs> available on the podcast feed. Um, so if you're listening on the podcast feed, you may have already heard that. If not, um, check that out. It was a really good conversation in general about the current state of things, the, the uh, NHRA announcement regarding national event competition, hopefully starting up in early August and just kind of touching base on things from the weekend. Kevin, today... We focus on 2007. This is our third Throwback Thursday. We mm -hmm. covered 2005. We covered 2006. Um, I, I pulled out of the depression from our 2006 discussion. I feel a whole lot better about 2007. I have much better personal memories from the year 07. I do too, but, but I don't want to bring down the mood immediately. But there were some tragic things that happened in 2007, and, and we probably need to, to cut right to the chase of a couple of them. 
obviously we, we, we lost a few great racers, most notably Eric Medlin in the testing crash there in Gainesville. And then later in the year, we suffered another big blow when Wally Parks, founder of NHRA, passed away in September at uh, age 94. And, you know, obviously we can get into it a little later, but, you know, Wally's the reason we're all here. His, his contributions to the sport are immeasurable. And, uh, you know, th- th- that was a very sad day, even though he lived a very long and full life. And, and we knew that, you know, there, there would come a time when we had to carry on without him. Um, you know, that, that became a reality there in late 2007. Given your job, how close were you personally with Wally? Uh, qu- quite close. The, the, the beauty of Wally, uh, number one, he was active until the day he died. His mind was intact. And Wally always had a soft spot for National Dragster because he had come from the publishing end of it. You know, he was the first editor of Hot Rod. And from the day I got there and even long before that, he, he kind of looked at National Dragster as his baby. So he was always a, uh, a kind of a hands-on guy. I mean, we, we wouldn't see him a lot, but he'd pop by the office and just check in and see how we were doing. And, and the thing was, Wally was kind of a uh, very active as far as writing letters. And w- when you got a letter from Wally, it, it was, you took a deep breath before you opened it because you were either going to get high praise or Wally could be brutally honest. And, and if, if you had written something he didn't like, uh, Wally would tell you um, in, in no uncertain terms. But it was still great to have that sort of communication and interaction. And, and the, the really cool thing about Wally, he would come by, if we were doing a historical piece, you might have our whole conference room laid out with 50, 60 old black and white photos from 30, 40 years ago. And Wally would just look and, and he knew every person in there. He knew the names, he knew what they drove, he, he had a, a backstory. So it was great to have that resource anytime we did something like, you know, NHRA's 40th anniversary, we did a special book. You know, Wally was very involved in that sort of thing. Now oh, that's awesome. My, uh, my father back before I was born, he worked for uh, Earl's and he, for a year or two, he drove the, the manufacturer Midway truck mm-hmm. and was the at track you know representative at the national events and there's a picture it was i'm telling you it was one of my father's most prized possessions it still hangs in my shop mm-hmm. of him with wally accepting some type of reward you know on sure, uh, sure. Uh, award mm-hmm. on behalf of, of earls and it's still you know it's something that i look at almost every day and it was uh, it meant the world to my father i don't think i ever met wally personally but he obviously touched a lot of lives and to your point is yeah. is essentially the reason we're here doing what we do yeah, he, he had, uh, you know, it's funny. every time you would be around Wally, people would come up, everybody asked him the same question. They would always, and they all thought they were being unique. Wally, did you ever think it would get as big as it is? And, and he was humble and he would, you know, and, and Wally's answer was always no. You know, we were in, you know, when, when he got back, you know, Wally was a World War II vet. When he got back, he just saw the need for people, you know, soldiers who, who had a lot of pent up energy, young kids that had been robbed of a lot of their, teen and 20 years that, that they wanted something to do. And he saw the need to have an organized place for them to run. And that was originally his, you know, his vision for this. And then once, you know, once you got into the mid fifties where we started having, you know, the nationals first in Great Bend, Kansas, and then it moved around, you know, you, you saw the potential for this as a spectator sport and, and, you know, what it's grown into today. But I mean, it was really sort of an evolution more than him sitting down saying, you know, we're going to create this massive, you know, association that has tracks all over the country. So, interesting stuff. All right, let's uh, 
let's set the tone a little bit for 2007. We try to take everybody back in time just a bit to, uh, to kind of set the mood. So 2007, that is 13 years ago. It's funny how time works. I, we've said this before. We did this in 05 and I'm like, some of this stuff seems like yesterday. Some of it seems like years ago. Everything that we touched on for 06 for me felt like yesterday. When I look at this from 07, I don't remember half of this stuff. Ancient, like, ancient history. Yeah, right? it feels like it was, a, it was three decades ago. You know? Yes, so, for sure. It's funny. Um, the, uh, but overall news for the year, Apple released the first version of the iPhone, January 2007. Again, that feels like a whole different era. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, 07 was the beginning of what I think is now termed as the Great Recession, right? Uh, unemployment sure. numbers escalated, real estate markets crashed. Um, it was a very, very difficult time financially, mm -hmm. uh, at least in America, if not across the world. Well, and I think, I think it definitely extended everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was so like, we'll get into where we were at the time. I was so broke, I didn't notice. Like people talk about, yeah, it, it, it obviously didn't affect me a bunch. And, uh, and, and I, was, I was just racing all of the time and the purses were there and that's all, that was all that was on my radar. So I, I look back on that and be like, I guess that was rough. I lived through it. Um, sports, um, Indianapolis Colts won the Super Bowl that year over the Chicago Bears, Boston Red Sox over the Colorado, Colorado Rockies in MLB, the Anaheim Ducks over the Ottawa Senators for the Stanley Cup, mm -hmm. San Antonio Spurs were the NBA champions over the Cleveland Cavaliers. 2007 was the year of the Florida Gator, national champions in both NCAA football and basketball. Kevin, I was actually at the Final Four that year. I That's awesome. I stumbled into tickets. Somehow it was me and Lucas Bendall, which if you've ever met Lucas, that, that's a, a hoot in and of itself. And we didn't make the semifinal games, but we were in the Georgia Dome for the final where uh, the Florida Gators beat the Ohio State Buckeyes. The same final, um, coincidentally, as the, the football championship that year sure. over Ohio State in both. Um, best picture was The Departed. Uh, Bob Barker's final episode of The Price is Right was, he was replaced by Drew Carey that year. Top movies, uh, Ratatouille and Pirates of the Caribbean. Kevin, where were you? What was going on in your life in 2007? Uh, again, you know, my, my life doesn't change much. You're going to see a recurring theme as we do more of these. We should uh, bounce around a little bit year to year. At, at, the time, at the time, though, still, you know, living in California, working for National Dragster. Um, the end of the year, it, it was uh, the year I got married to Jill um, in November. We, like most racers, we had a November wedding because nobody wanted to do this during the season. And, um, you know, that was fantastic. It was, it was a great party. We had a lot of racers there. Um, people came from all over the country. Uh, it, it was a fun time. And, you know, even though we, we were headed into this recession and times were a little tough, um, you know, th things like that are, are the memories you carry rather than the financial struggles. No question. For me, it was uh, this. I said this last um, on last week's show for 2006. Uh, 05 was the year I quit at Huntsville Engine. 08 was the year we started. This is bracket racing. So these two years in the middle, 06 and 07, it was literally complete tunnel vision, all racing all the time. So, uh, and, and my focus was bracket racing. So as we get to that portion of the show, uh, I'll talk a little bit more on that. Lead us off uh, as we typically do through the NHRA professional ranks in 2007. This was the first countdown to the championship year, correct? It, it, it was, and a lot of people don't remember that the countdown, the first time they tried it, it was phased in 
not not just a deal after Indy where we'll take the top 10. It was countdown to eight, then countdown to four. So it was the last two races that really decided it, which it made things far more compartmentalized. And I don't know that it, well, it had the desired effect of making the points battles close, but I don't know if it had the right effect of having the most deserving finalists. And I think that's why they went and, you know, a year later, that, that, this format only went on for one year, but, you know, your champions for the year were Tony Schumacher, which was kind of his middle of his decade of dominance. Uh, Tony Pedregon won, which was his championship, his second championship, but it was as a team owner, actually maybe it was the first. It actually was his first. Okay. He was driving for force. Um, Jag won in pro stock, which as we talked last week, Jag has won championships under pretty much every format they've had. And then Matt Smith won the motorcycle championship. Um, the unique thing was that all the championships were decided in Pomona at the final event. Uh, I think you tabulated the average margin was 12 points. So, you know, you're talking less than a round in most cases, which, you know, when you're only using two events to decide it, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have that. Um, so yeah, it, it was a, it was an interesting time. Um, you know, uh, l- later in the year, Ashley Force was your uh, Auto Club R- Rookie of the Year winner um, there at the banquet in, in L.A. Um, that uh, that playoff format, it's almost like there was maybe too much parity, you know, and too much randomness. Like it sure. had that to be revised a little bit into into what we have today. Uh, drama was high, but again, to right. your point. And it's funny you look back and because all of those feel like very deserving winners, but in the moment in that season, mm-hmm. I know that the way that Jeg told that story, like they were the complete underdog afterthought. You know I mean? They, they put right, together right. solid races when it mattered, but that season was dominated by, I think it was Anderson and Connolly that year. It, yeah, the, the, it's, in fact, I think, uh, and, you know, Anderson and Connolly each had eight wins that year. Um, and, and didn't finish, you know, neither one won the championship. And, and, and I think that was kind of, you know, when you looked at, at th- those are the sort of things I think that necessitated a change going forward. I thought it was interesting when, the, when you guys did the pro stock feature, you know, the history of pro stock mm-hmm. and national direction was at the beginning of last year now. I'm, I'm uh, probably was the beginning of this so, year. Because, yeah, that's right. Because this, this is the 50th anniversary of pro stock. I, I shouldn't, I don't want to, this is going to sound awful when I say it. I think I was pleasantly surprised. I, I didn't realize the depth of Dave's pro stock career, I guess, because it seems like he was the new kid on the block. And now yeah. it feels like, you know, he's been out of the driver's seat for a decade. I don't think it's been mm-hmm. quite that long, right. but in the time he was in there, I mean, he's, I think he's the 10th winningest driver in pro stock nice. history. Like he really got a lot accomplished in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I, I think you, you don't um, – he generally doesn't get in the discussion of greatest pro stock driver ever, ever because, I don't, you know, he just didn't have a long enough career to compare with Jag, Lydon, Lee Shepard. You know, even Erica now has got enough successful year, you know, three championships. You start to enter that. Well, they've never won a championship, but, but you look at his body of work, what it was, that there was nobody better during that time. You know, he won – probably a greater percentage of rounds on whole shots than anyone was rarely late, rarely made a mistake. Um, you know, you wonder what he might've done had he put in 10 years in a competitive ride. Uh, we, we might be having a totally different discussion when it comes to that. Yeah. Cause just natural ability and talent and, and natural is such an odd term. It's, it's obviously he worked to get to where he is, but right. that dude can drive. No question. I, I, do, I do remember when he, uh, 
you know, uh, the first team, the Bullet Motorsports team, and they were hooked up with Jeff Taylor. They wanted to put him in a comp car. And the story that Taylor had told me was they went testing and he made maybe two runs in the comp car. And he said, Taylor said, you're, you're wasting your time. Let's just go ahead and put him in pro stock. We're not going to accomplish anything in comp. Um, they felt like he, he was ready. He picked up the whole, you know, the art of driving a clutch car came very naturally to him. Um, all right, I see here, uh, Eddie Craywick joined the Harley Davidson team. That's 2007. That seems like forever ago. Yes. Um, and, you know, and Eddie was working, he was the track manager at Englishtown and, um, you know, there, there was, he had tried racing pro stock motorcycle on his own nickel without really any success. And, and I think he just had a dream and, um, you know, when, when he caught wind of, uh, Vance and Hines, you know, they, they came together. I know there was an audition that they, they brought him and maybe one or two other riders into a test session. Eddie performed the best. They hired him. He moved here to Indy and, uh, you know, four, four championships later, he's still going strong. When you say audition, that was mostly on track? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I, th I, think, I think there was actually, uh, you know, a, a meeting, a, a get to know, you know, do the personalities jive. But, um, you know, th that bike is and has always been a little more difficult to ride than the Suzuki's. And, and I think, um, you know, really, I don't think anybody just gets on it immediately and, and picks it up. You know, e even Andrew, for all the success he's had, didn't initially. Um, job but you know i think eddie performed the best they saw a lot of potential in him um as far as you know willing to do what it takes to succeed as a pro and uh yeah obviously they made the right choice there i think it would be fascinating to sit down with you know whether it's um whether it's vance and hines or whether it's um you know greg anderson or jaggy or something and just dissect footage you know i mean you feel like game tape you know preparing sure. your basketball team or football team like the actual driving and just see what they're looking at and what they would be looking for is like hey that that shows potential or this guy is all over the place you know what i mean because I, I have no idea no, when i sure. watch right well and i think i think most fans and even people like me look at it and you think can you cut a light and really that is is obviously it's important but it's such a small part of the equation when you're talking about well really any pro car but but pro stock motorcycle stock cars specifically you know keeping the thing in the groove hitting the shift points you know not letting you know when it starts to move do you catch it quickly and do you catch it in a subtle manner where you're not all over the, there's there's probably a lot of things they look at just you know you have to kind of be one with the vehicle and uh you know obviously the good crew chiefs are able to detect that and maybe even correct some driving flaws um but, but clearly that's not a skill that everyone has. To think that you can take any good bracket racer, put them in a pro vehicle and they'd be successful, I, I don't find that to be the case at all. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to it than me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You've got a note here, and I don't even remember the, this, so I want you to, because obviously you're privy to it, uh, share some of the details. NHRA announced plans to go public in 2007 with the, with the business. Yeah, I would say we got, um, I believe it was uh, mid-May, we had a company meeting and none of us knew, you know, periodically we would have those. None of us knew what this one was about. They brought in a group and basically introduced them as the prospective new owners of NHRA. Now the plan was, you know, and, and they had always talked about ways to, to, to grow NHRA. And, and one of the things was if you split NHRA into two companies, um, and, and launched, you know, their plan was to launch this NHRA Pro Racing, which would be 
the pro, you know, the mellow yellow series, what we know today. And I think the, the national event tracks that NHRA owns and then the rest of NHRA, which would be the sportsman racing, the division directors, national dragster, you know, the museum, all the other things they're involved in would still function as NHRA. Um, they were looking to split those, make the pro series a publicly traded company that could have shareholders and, and raise capital. And that would be used to do everything, to upgrade facilities, to just make the sport more visible and grow it. You know, you look at what being publicly traded has done for Bruton Smith and SMI, how they've got the nicest racetracks in the world. You know, th those sort of things were, were what the plan was. Uh, the problem was trying to raise an IPO in that environment was really difficult. So to get investors to come on board, uh, I think they tried for probably six months or so uh, to get it, uh, to make the numbers work to get it off the ground. And then I think by the end of the year, or maybe in early 2008, you know, we were basically told that it had fallen apart and, you know, not, not that they would never try again, but that they probably would, if they ever tried to do it, would take a little different approach. And I mean, it was fascinating because I, I ran across some of the paperwork we got. There was kind of a Q and A of what would happen, you know, depending on what department, which part of the company would you work for? But one of the cool things was this thing had enough money allocated where the NHRA Sportsman Series, you know, the and National Dragster, you know, the traditional NHRA that we all know, would have had a large infusion of cash where basically the company could have run on the interest for that pretty much forever, um, you know, plus the money that the division takes in, you know, as far as licenses, memberships, chassis, you know, all those things would be used to fund this. And, um, you know, I think it was probably a workable plan in a different time and who knows where we, where we might be. Um, and it's also hard to say that, you know, something that like that might not ever be explored again. You know, I mean, you look at Roger Penske buying IndyCar and, and you know, the 500 track. I, I don't think NHRA would, would want, you know, in fact, I know they don't, don't want a sole owner. I, I don't think a guy with deep pockets is just going to come in and write a check. The way the company's structured, they really can't do that. But, um, you know, who, who's, we're in very uncertain times right now. So who's to say what the future might hold? Um, as far as any big business, not not just drag racing or NHRA, you know, specifically. Yeah, no, fascinating stuff. Even to just kind of uh, let yourself think down the lines of, you know, what did this? What if this had come together in two thousand five? You know, and odds are, sure. could have gotten the funding to go through. Where would we be yeah. today? You know. Yeah. Um, I see. Uh, two thousand seven was the year that Antron Brown began to transition from pro stock motorcycle to top fuel. Uh, some of our some of our young listeners and viewers may not even remember Antron on two wheels, but that is where he got his start, at least on the professional tour. Yeah, I think I think that there was enough. Even though Antron did not win a championship on a bike, he was clearly one of the best riders. His personality was magnetic. They saw him as the type that fans and sponsors would gravitate towards. And uh, it was actually Lee Beard, who was the crew chief for David Powers at the time. I think at the end of the year, got him. He also said, you know, come, come drive one of our cars. Of course, he did well. He, he jumped right in there and, um, you know, really was, was a natural. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, that presented him opportunities. I think he got, you know, he started with David Powers, eventually transitioned over to the Schumacher team. He's now on, on the, you know, the verge of having his own team, which was something I know he's dreamed about for years and years, but uh, yeah, it's been an interesting career path for him. Yeah, no question. The, um, and 2007 was also the season. I remember we talked 
I don't remember now if it was 05 or 06 about the, the pro stock incident with Kenny Koretsky and Bruce Allen has that to me is one of those races. Like I can close my eyes and see that incident. You know, it's just ingrained, burned in my mind. Um, this one's the same way. This was uh, 2007, actually at the same facility, right? Both at the Texas Motorplex. Right. John Force and Kenny Bernstein in the shutdown area. Mm-hmm. Uh, nasty incident that, that hurt Force pretty badly. Same deal. I can picture that. I can replay that in my mind as if it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I think most of us know the story that John, you know, th- this was just months after losing Eric Medlin. So the team is already heartbroken, trying to move on. And then John gets hurt. Um, you know, he, he suffered some pretty severe leg injuries, was out of the seat for quite a while. Actually, probably not as long as people thought. I think there were a lot of people that thought it would have ended his career. Um, but if you know John, you know exactly how motivated he is. And he has even said in the years since that that incident, as painful as it was, extended his career because he got on a pretty serious training regimen of, of you know, not just rehabbing from the injury, but just, you know, hitting the gym, keeping himself in shape. And, you know, he has said he would not be able to race into his 70s now um, and be competitive if, you know, if he hadn't gone through all that. But, uh, you know, for sure, one of the scariest deals, you know, you, you know, single car accidents are bad enough. But when you see a, a two car crash and, you know, and that one was especially frightening because the way the car split apart, you know, the camera doesn't even follow. You weren't even sure which part John was in um, and, and until the safety crew actually got to him. and. Um, yeah, that was a, it was a, a dark day. On the sportsman side of things from 2007 in the alcohol categories, it was early on in the complete and total domination of both Bill Reichert and Frank Manzo. Uh, both of them repeated their 2006 championships in 2007 for Reichert. It was the second of five consecutive national titles for Manzo, the second of eight straight national championships yeah and, and frank had won i believe uh, three or four straight before then you know obviously he finished his career with 17 um that that was pretty much um you know probably the middle two-thirds of of just a guy that um you know in his prime which his prime was 20 years was practically unbeatable Manzo, i'll, I'll say this as a sportsman racer manzo is the anthony bertozzi of top alcohol funny car Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and he also happens to be, uh, much like Anthony, one of the most humble people you will ever meet. He, there, there was never a time, I mean, Frank, deep down, Frank, I think, knows how great he was, but there was never a temptation for him to rub it in anyone's face. I mean, actually, I think a lot of the intention embarrassed him a little. He, he didn't enjoy, um, you know, he didn't really enjoy doing interviews anytime you would talk to him after a national event win he would always be, um, you know, just don't make me look bad. You know, he, he didn't want to be seen as, you know, like I said, rubbing anybody's nose in it. And, and that's, that's a quality that I think has helped make him so popular over the years. No question. Um, my, the, his, I was at the banquet for his last championship. That was the year that I won the super comp championship. And that was the swan song, you know I mean? So, not only the obviously the lucas oil banquet was all about frank Mm -hmm. and even the 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 professional banquet like had a lot to you know this is frank swan song and i just remember him taking the stage and how emotional it was and and how awesome Mm -hmm. it was to just be a part of that and to your point 
everything's all over and we're taking our group pictures with our with our trophies and i mean it's been the frank manzo show right i feel like i know him personally right. and he comes over to me and he's like luke man congratulations great job and i'm like this dude knows my name holy you know but that's for, that's manzo that, 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 that says, is right, right? yeah um and, 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 and there is one thing it, it, it's not um again the man doesn't have the slightest hint of an ego but i've been to his house here he lives about 10 miles south of me and He's got a nice size office in there with, with beautiful furniture. He cannot fit all the Wallies in that office. Uh, there's over, we think we counted, I think the number, if you count the national event wins, the divisional wins, championships, divisional championships, everything, I think the number is 267 Wallies. And it, basically the, the three walls of the office are covered floor to ceiling. And then you go in the garage and there's another wall where some of them aren't even out of boxes. It, it just, it, it just, it rains wallies in, in that house. And uh, um, it, it's really an amazing thing to see. I'll have to, uh, at some point, have to share a picture of it. But um, the, uh, the most impressive thing I've seen in that regard, and, and just to put it in perspective, Scotty's collection is probably a third of, of Manzo's. But when sure. Scotty Richardson was living in Nashville, he had, he had quite the, the shop Mahal. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's big checks and, and wallies and everything like that everywhere. And I'm, I'm just in awe, you know, looking up at everything. And then I go into like, he takes me into a parts room or something like just, just this old back. And there's literally, and I'm probably outing him here, but there's like four or five wallies there that are like missing extremities. Like they are beat to hell. And I'm like, what happened here? You know what I mean? And at the time I might have one and, and it's, you know, on a pedestal somewhere. And uh, I'm like, what happened here? He's like, oh, my girls used to play with those. They, they beat them up pretty good. And I'm like, this dude has more wallies that are missing arms than I'll have in my life, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. No, it's, it's, it's amazing when you get to that point. And, you know, and, and Frank was not disrespectful, but I know their house in New Jersey, there was basically a spare room. And I think they were just, it was an empty room. And I think they were just on the floor. And it finally got to the point where there was no floor space. You, you couldn't walk from one end of the room to the other. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a good problem to have. I would imagine so. Um, competition Eliminator 2007, Frank Aragona. That's Frank's first championship, correct? I believe, believe it is, yes. Uh, relatively, well, not relatively close. He won it by six rounds over Dean Carter. Carter, two-time NHRA competition right. eliminator mm -hmm. champion, correct? Yeah. Um, this was the Darren Smith year. Darren Smith won the Superstock Championship mm -hmm. over uh, Peter Biondo, who we've talked about quite a bit in, in recapping 2005 and 2006. They fought right down to the wire. It was Darren Smith getting the world championship that season. Yeah, and, and it was amazing. I mean, D Darren did it without the benefit of a national event win. In fact, he still doesn't have one. Oh, wow. But... Um, uh, but what I remember, and, and I knew, you know, living in California, I knew Darren and his family quite well. And he, there were two or three times during the year where, you know, he'd had a good race, kind of got himself up there and then got passed. I, I think at one point, Jimmy DeFrank passed him. I know Peter. And sure enough, he would come back and do whatever he needed to do, whether it was a quarterfinal, a semi, going to a final. He fought back every time. And, and finally, I believe the second to the last race year in Vegas, I don't know if he officially clinched it, but um, he won enough rounds to, uh, you know, to, to give himself the lead. And uh, yeah, that, that, that was a pretty gutty performance for a guy that, you know, typically doesn't travel and, and you know, certainly didn't have the resume that, that guys like Peter and Jimmy DeFrank had. 
and then in uh, in stock eliminator it was michael Alicano got the uh mm-hmm. the national championship that year i believe that's his only national championship perennial mm-hmm. top 10 finisher and yeah. again uh number two that season mm-hmm. peter biondo you cut the note here that peter lost both championships by a combined total of 18 points so that's less than two rounds and i do remember i don't remember the details at this point, but I remember Pete's last race that season was the Division Two event in Reynolds, Georgia. And when I say I don't remember the details, it's obvious looking back that he had to win both classes to win both national championships. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that was kind of known coming in. I, I don't know. I can't verify right, that. Right. But if it wasn't explicit, it was, hey, if I'm going to have any shot, I, I need to win here. And if you know Peter Biondo at all and the way that not and forget his accomplishments but just the way that he thinks Mm -hmm. i think it's safe to say there was no doubt in his mind that he was going to go to reynolds georgia and win both of those classes right Mm -hmm. i I, I probably just knowing pete the the chances are like hey somebody may just make an unbeatable run beside me once but i'm certainly going to win one of them right and to that level of confidence peter advances to the final round in both categories with the most pressure you could possibly imagine right Mm -hmm. yep and um, Stock ran first. I, I, I don't think I was there, but I was close with Brad Ford. Still am close with Brad Ford. Brad beat uh, Peter in the final of Stock in just a ridiculous race. The, the finish margin was triple zero eight. And I was looking at it on Drag Race Central today. They're both down <laughs> mile an hour. So who knows what happened? Like, <laughs> right. Peter would probably tell you that he gave it back and Brad, whatever, right? But yeah, yeah. obviously <laughs> the coin flipped, it could have gone either way. And then minutes later, a Pete returned for the final of Superstock. And it, and it looks just looking at the results and best I can remember, blew the tires off on the starting line. He was like mm-hmm. 13, 14 above um, at a high mile an hour right. uh, after having a starting line advantage. And I just know from the little bit that Peter shared, the, and you've you got a Hall of Fame career, seven NHRA World Champions at seven, is that right? Seven. And, but I'm just telling you, if you bring this up, like it might be the low point in his racing career, like those 10 minutes. Sure. And you could just imagine the, the gut punch that that's got to feel like, especially when you ride the wave all the way to the final, like mm-hmm. knowing what's at stake and, and you've got both cars there and then to lose them both just back to back under those circumstances. <laughs> sure. And then we, we have talked, you know, in the past couple of weeks about Scotty winning five championships, losing two on tiebreakers. So he, he would potentially be a seven time champ. Now you look at Pete that has seven. And if those two races go the other way, we're talking about a nine time champion. And, you know, and again, then this is a guy who hasn't really pursued one for the better part of the last decade. So it just makes you wonder, had Pete dedicated his entire life to pursuing championships, would we be looking at him, you know, would he be nipping at Manzo's heels right now saying, well, geez, Pete's sitting on 15 if he does this for another few years? Certainly there's that sort of potential there. I mean, obviously his life has has moved in other directions as far as family and and running successful businesses. But um, yeah, it it makes you wonder what might have been. The potential was there. Peter Biondo could have been the NHRA version of Anthony Bertozzi. I'll keep that. (laughs) He would would love to hear that, by the way. Uh, Supergash National Champion 2007, Sherman Adcock Jr. Sherm became the first, no, I'm sorry, the second driver to win multiple Supergas World Championships, joining Sheldon Gecker on that elite list. Yes. Um, 
2007 was the first of back-to-back Super Comp World Championships for mm-hmm. one Sean Langdon. And yes. funny, Sean was on Storytime with me about a month ago now, and we kind of walked through that 07 season. And in his own words, coming into that year, I don't. I think he had said he had never finished higher than like fifth in Division Seven. You mean the 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 top ten nationally was the ultimate goal, and right, then right. find himself in the mix, and then uh, obviously at the end holding the trophy over the likes of Edmund Richardson, Troy Williams Jr., Gary Stinnett were all in the top ten that season, yeah. uh, and then Langdon comes obviously back and and backs it all up with a, another championship in two thousand and eight. Yeah, it makes you wonder what you're thinking when you get to the latter third of the season and you're looking and you've got those guys, even if you have a lead and those guys are chasing you, it can't be a comfortable feeling. And it's even worse if you're chasing them and you're three, four rounds behind it. It probably, um, probably seems like a hopeless situation, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously he went and uh, finished the year strong and kept barreled right on through 2008, which we'll get to next week. I'm sure. See, uh, a, a number of very familiar names just racking up multiple national event victories in 2007. Jody Lang, four. Dan Fletcher, five. David Rampey, five. Peter Biondo, five, including Indy. What's he won Indy? Six times? I believe he has, yeah. It's a ridiculous number. I nearly did it in top dragster this past season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Pete... I've asked him about Indy specifically, how he can do so well there. And uh, I just feel like that format where you, you, you're there for a full week, it's grueling. That just favors him where you might run one round one day at, not, at eight in the morning and not run until eight o'clock at night the next day. You, you can have all sorts of weather and temperature changes. You, you can have a 20, 30 degree swing in temperature. Um, you know, in those situations, the racers um, who, who, you know, who are best at adapting seem to have the most success. And, you know, it'd be hard to argue that Pete's not so, sort of the master at that sort of thing. And I, I think that speaks well for why he has done so well at Indy. No question. It definitely fits his overwhelming skill set. I've always said I feel like national event competition in general is such a separator in the sportsman categories between however you want to say it, the, the experienced, the inexperienced, maybe the prepared, the unprepared, I think more than anything, the, the confident and, and maybe less than confident. And then Indy is that cubed, you know what I mean? Because it is sure. so spread out and there's just inherently more pressure because it's Indy and you factor in the idea that there's literally the best might be an overstatement in the sportsman categories, but there are some of the best racers from every corner of the country, every division in every class, you know, so that elevates things as well. And, and I agree, like you look at the success that he's had there, um, DeFrank's similar and, and seems like he's, he's won Indy several times. Scotty, when he was racing, won Mm -hmm. Indy fairly regularly. I do. Nearly doubled. Right. Yeah. He's come as close as anybody. And obviously Mm -hmm. Randy, um, no doubles in uh, no doubles at the national event level in 2007, but that was mm-hmm. the year that Ray and Dave Connolly both won um, mm-hmm. in St. Louis. I believe that was Dave in Pro Stock, Ray in Super Gas. Correct, and, and they've done that a couple times. That was not the first time that they'd, they'd okay. done that. You know, back when Dave was winning Pro Stock regularly, um, just anytime Ray would sneak in there and get one, there was a good chance they were going to share it. But but still, I mean, to, to, to me, 
th those would be special moments. You know, anytime you have a father, son, or even, you know, father, daughter, in the case of John Force or somebody, um, that, I mean, if, if you're a parent, I couldn't imagine a greater feeling than, than winning a race the same day as your kid. You know. No question. There was a lot of family stuff going on in, uh, in 2007. Uh, Gary Emmons over Jerry Emmons in the Bell Rose. That's the, the JEG Sports Nationals mm -hmm. uh, stock eliminator final. Another near double up. Uh, and so you've got listed here, David Rampey lost both finals at the, the spring Vegas race that year. Right. Which, you know, doubles are an interesting thing. Um, obviously, we know that it's been, I think it's 27 people that have done it now, uh, maybe 43 times. But there have not been a lot of people who got to both finals and lost. It, it, I mean, there were many, many splits, but th the list is still to this day fairly short of the people that have lost two finals. And, and I don't know, I'd have to actually go back and research it. Uh, I do know who the first one was though, and you might be surprised to find out that it was Peter Biondo. Really? Yeah, who was actually, I, I wanna say maybe Reading, I'm, I'm not sure the venue, but, but um, to think a guy that's generally money for, for him to lose two finals at a national, um, you would have gotten long odds for that. Yeah, what a kick in the gut. The um, I, I to your point, the split seemed far more common. Was wasn't Fletcher like twelve times that split them all until he finally doubled or some, some yeah, yeah, large it, number? It, yeah. it was at least nine that, that I can think of, but it, it might have gotten up to ten or twelve before he finally pulled it off. Um, TJ Tracy, former million winner, was uh, got his first top sportsman win. I believe that was in Bell Rose as well. It, it was. It was. Mm -hmm. um, let's see what else have you got here. Oh, Fletcher got the win in Supergas. That was kind of out of nowhere, right? Yeah, that, that was sort of uh, you know lead actor in a strange role of <laughs> you know, a, a guy that uh, I'm pretty sure that was the first um, pro tree race he'd ever won. I, mean, I don't know if he'd ever won a divisional or anything, but to jump in, and I know he was in a borrowed car. Just, you know, which again showed you the versatility. And I think he actually won a second race later that year. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. He had gas. two or three in that same car, right? Yeah. And then, you know, of course, years later, he, he went on and, uh, you know, won a super comp race. But, um, you know, again, just shows you the, uh, the versatility of that. <clears throat> Some other headlines, Division One put four other drivers into the winner's circle to win the Jags All-Stars. Uh, that was a huge accomplishment. Uh, our buddy, Jimmy Harrington, uh, one of the last couple of years he raced before he passed, he got to the final of Englishtown, which was kind of his home track. Um, he lost to Jeff Tripp, but uh, if you knew Jim, I'm sure there was still an adequately sized party afterwards uh, for that. Um, something I know he's a friend of yours, Mark Horton, won Norwalk Super Comp title, which was the first year of Norwalk, 890 with a zero in the final to beat Jim Hughes, uh, went 890 with a four. So you know, kind of your typically close super comp final. Yeah, and I'm sure that that one was super special to Mark just because that is home. I mean, that's the, sure. that's certainly the home NHRA track, and I would I would argue the home track in general. And at that point, Mark had had won an IHRA World Championship. This may have been his first NHRA national event win. I, I know he ended up with a handful of them. But. Right. Uh, and then we were just talking about losing two finals at a national event. It doesn't happen often. But later in the year, Ryan McClanahan, goes to Denver, goes to the final. I'm pretty sure it was super stock and super comp. You know, he's dabbled a little bit in some pro tree stuff, um, but ended up losing both finals. And then great final round in Seattle, Brad Ploward, Jody Lang, 
Brad is triple zero on the tree, dead on nine. Jody's not far behind. Uh, he's dead on with a one, but misses the tree a little at 023. So that, that's about as good as it gets in Stock Eliminator. Is that not another chapter in the novel of Jody Lang deserved to win and it just didn't yes. work out? <laughs> it seems like he's had so many near misses. Yeah, so yeah. He, levels, right? yeah no, it, the, the number of times that he's finished second in the points, um, the, the number of times that, uh, you know, races like that where he's done pretty much everything correctly and not won. And then, of course, you know, we, we've discussed this at length, him scoring 699 points and not winning the championship. It's the highest points total ever not to win. Um, you just hope at some point the cards start to even out for him. Yeah, no question, because unbelievably talented racer that is probably, and has had a Hall of Fame career, but has probably been worthy of more accolades along the way. Absolutely. And the master at racing a slow car, yes. you know, especially today, you know, it's one thing when you're running a 12-second car against 10-second cars, but now that stock eliminator cars are going mid-eights, you know, some of them, you know, they've been in the sevens, and for him to still go down there and tighten things up the way he does and to have a strategy that, that's effective. Um, I'm not sure everybody can do that. You know, everybody can drive a 12-second car. Not everybody can successfully race one. No. And if you follow him closely, like, I don't know when the last time that he made a wide-open run is ever. I forget. <laughs> I, it must Because I don't think that I've ever raced against Jody, but it, it must have been an event that we were both at, whatever. Like I remember doing some research and homework and I looked back like two years trying to figure out what he could go and I couldn't find a freaking white. I had no idea what he could do. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, normally we like to shed some light on the, the stories from IHRA in each of these years. We were able to do that in 2005, 2006. Admittedly, some of the stuff's really, really difficult to find. And the reasoning that I have been told for this is the IHRA website and main database crashed I think in 2007 mm. and it's hit and miss to find things prior to that. Well, it was nearly impossible to find anything for 2007. Well, so if you won an IHRA world championship in 2007, <laughs> way to go. Congratulations. Please, please write in and we'll yeah. next week. <laughs> Unfortunately, we cannot recognize you here. The only thing we, I could find was um, the, the, Summit Super Series box champion, Chad, Chad Hedgecock of uh, Eagle Racing Engines. No box champion was Will Steckley of Canada. I remember uh, following Will's season that year. And uh, downtown Jeff Brown, uh, one of the first American race cars dragsters. It's the only reason that I, that I would know that. Uh, he was the 2007 IHRA top dragster world champion. So with that, Kevin, we'll turn the page a little bit to the big dollar bracket scene, which was really beginning to blow up in 07. Um, obviously not to the level of recent years, but what we had talked about in the previous two years, there was uh, two-ish $50,000 to win races mm -hmm. each season. This year, that number at least doubled. I think there was five or six, like 50 granders became a thing. Um, there was just more big dollar races in general as that scene began to, to gain some momentum. Sure. And, and it's interesting that all of this happens in the middle of, you know, what at that time was the worst economy in our lifetimes where you, you had to wonder how did all these races survive? How did they do car count wise? But obviously they did because, you know, for, for the next decade or more, bracket racing continued to trend upward. Um, and, and yeah, you know, to, to, it takes a, a pretty stiff end 
entry fee and a pretty good car count to fund any $50,000 race. And to have as many as a half dozen of them, um, that, that, that certainly speaks well for the overall health of the sport. Yeah, no, it's interesting to look back because this feels like it had to be kind of a watershed season in that regard. And my, my recollection or perception of it now looking back is that there was momentum built up from the years of the B&M series and then, then the initial traction that the DregersResults.com series got, which I would actually say the heyday of that series was 06. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. But seeing that those events could work on an on a almost national level, I think made more promoters realize, hey, we can do this. And I do think the bulk of these were announced and committed before that economic turndown. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. And I think in retrospect, when we look back, maybe that off season or the next year, like, holy hell, these all work despite this, you know, right. and, I, and that was kind of the footing to realize, hey, this model has got real potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you look at drag racers, they tend to be resourceful. If they want to go, they'll find a way to go. And, and you know, there's another thing that's probably a little overlooked in that era. Uh, I think, and, and because this is sort of your age group, you could probably speak to it. You know, you had the junior drag racing league that came along in the early 90s. And by mid-90s, it was rolling pretty good where a lot of kids who wouldn't previously have had a chance to race can get in cars as young as eight years old. Well, fast forward to 2007, and I think there's an explosion of those kids that have experience, they're good, that they've made hundreds, sometimes thousands of runs. And now I think either either the parents are, are willing to put them in a car or they can get one themselves and go to a big bracket race and be competitive. And I think that's why you know, you've had, because you look at most of the people that win those at the time, they, they tended to be younger guys. Um, and and I, I think you can't overlook what role the junior program may have played in that. That's a really good point. Because in 2006, or in, in 2007, I'm 26 years old, uh, was one of the, the early graduates of that program. And like you said, kind of my generation, that's kind of the coming of age where we've got a little bit of more experience in a big car. To your point, a lot of, a, a lot of I shouldn't say us at this point, a lot of them to the point that they could, you know, actually operate their own equipment sure. <laughs> financially. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure I was quite to that point. This was really a turning point season for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I don't think, I don't think the junior program gets enough credit for kind of establishing that. I, I think you've got a really good point. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's start off with the, the DragRaceResults.com series, because again, in retrospect, I would say 06 was kind of the heyday for this. 07, it was strong. I remember a couple of, of events late in the season that the handwriting was kind of on the wall, that, that this, was, this was going downhill. And then ultimately, they, they finished that, that 2008 season, but it was on its very last legs at that point. Um, but starting out, this thing was strong and just uh, this was my focus in, in 2007. If you remember back to last week's show, I lost the, the title in 2006 on a tiebreaker, like heartbreaking performance on my end. And so I'd like to say in retrospect that like that was the fire that, you know, cultivates iron or whatever, you know, whatever the line is, like that, that's the fire in the belly and everything. I, I just was really focused. I don't know, looking back, if that really played a huge role or if it was just the timing right and things fell into place. But I came out in 07 and just lit that series on fire uh, right from the get-go. I, there was a, I don't remember if it was three consecutive weeks, but the first three races that I went to were at South Georgia. And I'm pretty sure 
that I won a day in sportsman and was in both finals in super pro one, one runner up one, then went to Atlanta, ran the table, won both days of sportsman. And on the second day doubled up and won super pro then went to the Texas Motorplex at Dallas and won two of the three days in sportsman and was runner up one day in super pro in for all intents and purposes, right then, which was in March, the sportsman championship was over. Like, I mean, I'd won five or six races or something ridiculous, right? <laughs> right. And mm-hmm. Super Pro, I, I, I led from wire to wire as it ended up. Um, it got a little bit closer later in the season. Um, but yeah, I ended up winning the, the, the national championship in both of those, which was at the time a huge windfall. It would still be a huge windfall today. It was uh, in the strength, uh, in the heart of that series. And the Super Pro national champion got a turnkey dragster. The no box or sportsman champion got a motor. So it was huge. And, yeah, so, uh, so basically what you're saying is you killed the series. Maybe. maybe single-handedly, so. you destroyed it. I think there were a lot of factors that went into it. But yeah, I probably, looking back, it didn't, didn't help matters. Um, and there was just, on the Super Pro side of things, like I don't really remember any other races mid-season. I, I remember picking back up in – uh, September and Labor Day. I'm almost certain it was Labor Day. I was in Abilene, Texas, of all places, and just ran the table. Like I ran myself in the final of Super Pro, won the $5,000 Gamblers race the same day, and ended up runnering up in Sportsman to to ruin otherwise like the the ultimate undefeated day. Mm-hmm. And the sure. final of Sportsman, like I'm I'm outing myself. And you can as we go through the results, like. It, it's really fun to look back on because my name appears a lot. Like I had a really good year. Yeah. I was seven bar far better than my memory serves. And I just, how invincible I felt. So I remember distinctly rolling up for the final in sportsman in my Vega. I think I had already won the semi and super pro. So I'm, I'm, I'm having a banner day and feel like nobody can touch me. And the, um, I was racing a woman that was dialed like a second slower than me. And one of my buddies is literally drunk on a golf cart, like falling off the golf cart. Man, you're the man. Da, 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 da. What you ought to do, you ought to just dial heads up and show them. And I'm thinking, well, nobody can, ain't nobody can beat me. So I did. I dialed up a second to run this one. Oh, no. sportsman. And it would have, would have what otherwise should have been an easily winnable round. I, I gave back the finish line like two thousand to be like six above because you have no idea. You know what I mean? Right, I'm right. Holding a second. And, uh, and that was the only thing that ruined my, my perfect day. So thank you, Rusty Rose, and, of course, my own ego for agreeing to do that. So. I, I do have a question, though. Since, since you've run yourself in a big money final, when, when you get to that point, when you're down to where there might typically be a split, quarterfinals, five, six, seven cars left, is that do people not even approach you when you've got two entries in just because the odds are so overwhelmingly in your favor? You I mean – mathematically ethically and otherwise it really doesn't even make sense to discuss a split at least at least in my opinion it it depends on the situation i've been in i've been in that spot a, a handful of times and you can have one let's say we're down to three cars i'm two of them and i have the buy like all right but he you beat me here and then then maybe we'll talk right but there's other situations where say there's seven cars left someone else has the buy you've got to race two really good opponents, whatever, you know what I mean? Like there, sure. there are definitely situations where there's still a split discussion and, and agreement, but yeah, I, I think it's pretty situational, but yeah, by and large, you feel pretty good at that point. But also having been through it, you know, that there's also a pretty good chance that the bottom falls out right here, you know? <laughs> so That's right. I, guess, I guess the only thing worse than, than losing the quarterfinals of, of a huge money race would be losing two entries in the quarterfinals oh. of a huge and not making a deal. Um, been there. 
I, I, I could see that. <laughs> Uh, all right, what else we got on the bracket scene? Like I said, uh, fifty granders popping up everywhere, and uh, and just a lot of a lot of positive movement in the in the big dollar bracket racing population in general. Yeah, uh, well, so you see, we have this. Uh, you talked about fifties, eighteen-year-old Rustin Mays, Farmington Dragway goes there, bags of, of fifty thousand. But also at that event, Steve Withrow Jr. runs himself in the final of a ten k race. Again, was there ever a split in that? My guess would be no. Uh, I think because I think he uh, just doing some of the research. That event was ten to win, twenty five hundred runner up. He got that, and then won another ten. Maybe got down to the semis of the fifty and made a split. But um, I believe the headline we looked at was that he had left there with over twenty five grand. I believe that. Yeah. No. And especially because. You figure Big W was running the show at that point and, and handling the, the split negotiations. Steve Sr., yeah. pretty business savvy dude. I would imagine sure. imagine little lowercase w walked away with everything. And that's a, yeah. that's a name from the past because life has taken Junior in, in different directions. And I don't, to my knowledge, he hasn't taken the wheel in a decade. Mm -hmm. That dude won a lot in a short period of time. Really, really, yeah. probably as good as anybody I've ever seen on the starting line. That guy wrecked the tree. Mm -hmm. um, we talked a little bit last week about the, uh, the ultimate 64, uh, mm -hmm. which has, has migrated around to several different tracks in Kentucky and, and Ohio, but got its start uh, at Mountain Park Dragway in Clay City, Kentucky. And we were speculating um, as to when it started. It actually did start. The first ultimate 64 was in 2006. Um, we didn't touch on that last week. I, I couldn't find the results, but I am 99% sure that the 50 grander was Steve Royalty over Josh Baker in 06. I was able to find results for the 07 event, second annual, it was Rob Cropfeld in the coolest Vega station wagon in the world. Uh, got the $50,000 win over Chris Johnson. At that time, they were still experimenting with the format the foot brake side of it was a $10,000 to win. And I don't remember if it was a 32 car field or a 64 car field, but I want to bring this up because Mason Hatton, uh, another legendary Kentucky racer, got the win in that over my partner, Big Jed, Jared Pennington, yeah. runner up on the foot brake side. Speaking of Big Jed, 2007 was also the inaugural World Foot Brake Challenge at Bristol. And this is one that I, I know uh, to our point earlier, got announced early, right? And mm -hmm. hey, we're going to do this. And, and Jed and Stone Cold really out on a limb. $50,000 to win races were not common to begin with, unheard of on, yeah. on the bottom bulb crowd. And then in the middle of, you know, the, the pre-entry process for this, the bottom starts to fall out of the economy. Like there was significant concern. And I think it was year two where they really kind of hit a home run with the mm -hmm. WFC, but year one survived, I guess, similar to sure, looking sure. back on the spring fling. And I remember it being a, a full house and just a ton of excitement. Um, and that year, it was the first two years uh, of the WFC paid $50,000 to win Saturday. Obviously the, the format had been changed a, a few times since. Um, and in those first two years, the winner of both $50,000 races was one Scotty Richardson. Um, Scotty, obviously more renowned and well-known for his exploits in a dragster, letting go off the top on the pro tree. Um, he can do it all if it's got four wheels, perhaps two. Um, yeah. if, if it involves going 660 or 1,320 feet, Scotty's really good at it. Um, yeah. I, 
I got no, to the, see the, that the, first, right, the, the first story that I know from Scotty, he's told this many, many times. He was 12 or 13 years old. You've probably heard this, right? Driving the family station wagon, he went to, uh, it wasn't even Kennedy. It was one of the tracks. I think he had to drive 100 miles, maybe Paris, Texas or something. Wins $3,000. Driving home, he gets pulled over and a cop obviously wants to know, what is a 13-year-old doing with $3,000 in cash driving the family car? And um, I don't believe he got in trouble for it. You know, I said, what did your parents say? And, you know, I, I think it Good was, job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was congratulations, right? Where's my car? <laughs> you know, maybe did you fill the car with gas? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it was, it's been a little over a year ago now. Uh, I had Edmund on to do like a story time segment mm -hmm. on the podcast. And he got to talking about some of the early days and some of the travel exploits. Because I just, I think I brought it up because I remember, you know, growing up at Kennedale, they would pull into to Kennedale, which was 10 miles from where they lived, mm -hmm. with a ramp truck with a door car on it, a small enclosed trailer with two dragsters behind it, with a mm -hmm. hitch welded on the back of it, with an open trailer and another, you know, Pinto, Camaro, whatever the hell they had at the time. And Edmund starts laughing and he's like, Kennedale? Hell, we went to Phoenix like that. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah scotty wins the 50 at bristol um defeated yours truly in the final i was actually in the final the first day as well i lost the 10 grand final to, to chris plot that one really sticks out to me because as solid a season as that was for me from really start to finish i had never staged in a round for that kind of money on the line um and it actually it started a trend that i'm not particularly proud of i've been in four fifty thousand dollar finals i've yet to win one which I wouldn't no. trade any of them for winning the, the spring fling million. So if that's right. the trade off, I'll take it. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, Scotty spanked me around pretty good in the final. We got to four in that race in the 50 grander. And um, I think it had rained a good bit earlier that Saturday. Well, we got to four and hit curfew. So I remember that being one of the most sleepless nights of my life, a, because you're excited, right? You're down to four mm -hmm. cars. And, sure. and I think we had already negotiated some sort of split. So you know that you're getting paid, but mm -hmm. Also, you knowing remember what it was, I want to say I don't remember exactly. I'm almost certain the final ended up. Scotty and I split it pretty close, like 28 and 24, or 26 and 24, or something like that. But I want to say it was only like six or eight thousand dollars to semi. So okay. the, the semi was the huge sure, round. Sure. It was me, Scotty, um, Brian Brown, and Pete Kivett, I believe, and they're both from the the Northeast. I ran Brian, Scotty ran Kivett. And um, so we finished that the next morning, but I just remember the, the anxiety and emotions of having to sit on that for 12 hours, you know sure, what I mean? Sure. Wasn't a whole lot of sleep going on that night, but that, that specific race, and I've credited Jed with this before, like, thank you for putting that on, because it literally changed the trajectory of my racing career. I was, I had a, a 10-year-old Dooley hauling this, it was a living quarters trailer, but that, this is where I went the whole season. It was, I don't remember the dimensions of the trailer, but it wasn't big enough to do what I was doing. Like it, mm -hmm. it, had, it had a bed in it. So that part was good. And it had a shower, um, but it was rough, rough, rough. And whatever the, the, the garage portion of the trailer, it wasn't tall enough or long enough to haul my dragster and my Vega. Mm -hmm. So the dragster would back in, you'd winch it up to the ceiling and there wasn't enough room to have like a beam to hold the front tires. Like they, they just got ratchet strapped. Right, to, right. The, to the A-frame. A so the winch and the ratchet straps are all that's holding it. And there still wasn't enough room, even without a beam, for the Vega. So I would literally drive the Vega in until it hit the dragster and closed the door. And they just rode that way. Like the Vega doubled as a center support for the dragster for the year. Yeah, the roof was caved in. It was awful. So 
yeah. Um, but any, at any rate, that race, whatever, that 20 some odd thousand dollars and plus what I had won Friday, I had sold the, my motorhome. I think I had mentioned um, on the previous show the, the year prior, well, to sell my motorhome at the time, I was so upside down in it. Um, I had borrowed like $50,000 just so that I could get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that money paid off that motorhome. You know, I was like completely yeah. out of debt and kind of got a clean slate and was able to start an upward trajectory from there. But that was a big, big pivotal moment in my career. Um, Jake's US Open. See, I, I think I probably misspoke last week because I said that 2006 was at Indy, but I remember Ed been beating Dave Triplett uh, in the final of the US Open for 20 grand and it was at Tri-State. So I'm, 2006 must've been at Tri-State as well. Okay. Um, Tri-State is a unique place, uh, now shut down near Cincinnati, Ohio. We'd race across a median. And when I yes. say median, there was like a 40 foot grass strip between lanes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like I gave up on driving the finish line there, but that place was a Mecca in, Yes. The, 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 the U.S. Open kind of brought it back, but years prior to that, that was one of the initial hubs of big dollar bracket racing. Yeah, it, it was Bob Loudon at the time who was the track operator, and, and he kind of became a fixture, uh, I want to say mid-90s, going to places like Moroso, and I think he, he saw what had been done down there and thought, well, th is there any reason why this wouldn't work in the summertime in Ohio? And, and yes, I, I remember going to his place, even when I was living in Florida a couple times, uh, for some of the some of the bigger events he'd have he'd have you know three tens three twenties over a weekend and uh yeah they they, they pretty much drew uh, a who's who um there, there was and and yeah to to your point i remember the grass median you know the other place that had that years ago also gone is warner robbins georgia mm. um, and i i've never raced at a track like that but um it would be hard to imagine going down there. I, don't, I couldn't be any worse at driving the finish line than I am now. So at least I would have a built-in excuse. So, so maybe we need to bring those back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At one time, I believe Muncie had a median as well. I don't think I ever raced across the median, but now you can even see where it's been paved over and like there's a little elevation difference between the lanes. It's another right. unique place, right? Yeah. Um, Another 50 grander World Super Pro Challenge, one that's been going on forever that we've touched on every year. Uh, in 2007, the winner of that event up at uh, Mid-Michigan Motorplex was Bruce Hall. And I was there for that. And I don't, I don't know how well you know Bruce, but that's one of the good guys. Like, I think for that sure. was a feel-good moment for, for all of us at that so point. So was, was he driving his dragster or was he driving his GTX? He was in his dragster at that one, yeah. Uh, okay. Now, 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 the funny Bruce Hall story from, this is early 80s. Early days of Moroso, he would go down there with the GTX, and I know I believe it was Superstock Magazine that did kind of a, a, a how-to story. They interviewed some of the more well-known guys and gave them tips on how to bracket race. And I remember, of course, this was pre-delay box, uh, and, and Bruce saying that typically he would make his two time trials, and he, his dial he would just dial four hundredths quicker than his best time trial, and that was his strategy. And you know, in nineteen eighty-two, three. That, that was, was probably an effective strategy. And I thought you, you wouldn't get out of the first round now anywhere with that. You, you would abandon that so quickly. Um, I'm not even sure holding four from your best run is the, is the most effective strategy these days. But um, it, it just, I always remember that article and, and just thought that this, this is hilarious, that, that this is how things were done. And, you know, if you could be 40 on the tree, you were golden. We, uh, it's so funny you bring that up because that's the, that's what early to mid eighties. Well, fast forward to 
early 90s, I remember racing with my father at, uh, you know, watching my father race. Obviously, I'm 10, 12 years old at, uh, at Kennedo for the most part. And on NHRA Today, Bob Fry comes on and it was a, you know, bracket racing how-to, right? Mm -hmm. And I think he might have even had some input from Edmund and Scotty at the time, but he went through like, okay, so here's your three time trials. And usually to select your dial and you take an average of the three. And me and my dad looked at each other like, what an idiot. You're going to break out. Like, you can't do that. You take the fastest one and dial down one or two. Duh, everybody knows that, you know. And now you just contrast that with what we know today. Uh, Fry might have been a little ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I'm not 100% sure that that was honest information from the Richardson brothers at that time. That might have been what they wanted you to do. It's not necessarily what they were doing at the time. Good point. Good point. Uh, <laughs> 2007 million dollar race. Uh, that, uh, that's the first time that we had a repeat winner at the million. Gary Williams wins million number two, defeated Ricky Adkins in the final. And this was a big million at the time. Yeah. I know it was the richest one for a long time. I, I want to say that we just eclipsed that within the last year or two. Uh, Gary Williams, $345,000 on the line before the, prior to the split. I got that win over a uh, long time IHRA and big dollar bracket standout, Ricky mm. Adkins. I said that I had a funny story for this and we're over time, but the hell with it. Who cares, right? So Gary and I ran each other second round of this million. And at the time, there was still first or second round buybacks. I had lost in round one. Gary was driving for Mike Bloomfield. Bloomfield comes over and he's like, all right, so we got to get you into round three. He's like, so what do you want to do? I'm like, that's fine. I'll, I'll pay the buyback or whatever. If Gary will turn it red, like that's, I'll do that. No, no, no. We got to do a little bit more than that. I'm like, well, I mean, like, I'm not going to pay the entry fee to get there. Like I'll just race, you know? Yeah. He's like, no, no, we just need to kick back something just across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Let, it's like, uh, we'll split the buyback even and we'll, um, we'll kick back 10%. Okay, like I got 10% of Gary Williams, you know, and at the time, probably thought like either one of us could win just as easily, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so <laughs> Gary and I roll out there and whatever, he turns it red for me. So I, I end up uh, going a couple rounds, like fourth round, I'm out of the million, and I'm watching in the bleachers. And me and Lucas Bendall, who I mentioned earlier, we go uh, ride through the pits or something like that. We're not paying much attention. There's like, 15 cars left. I'm completely, completely forgot about that conversation. Right. And we, had, we say, Hey man, who's, who's going to win the million. And at the time, Scotty had two entries in. I'm like, well, Scotty, obviously. Right. <laughs> and he's like, no, nah, man, who else is going to like that? That's too obvious. You know, who, who else is, who else is still in? And they run through the list of the remaining cars at 15 or whatever. And they're like, Gary Williams. I'm like, Oh, Gary, Gary can win. Wait, Gary can win. <laughs> so long story short, I am uh, at the finish line at the top of the bleachers in Memphis. Gary's wind light comes on in the final round of the million. And for something that I had really had no part in eight hours prior, I got $10,000. <laughs> I, I, I have no words for that, but, but, but good on you for agreeing to the deal. And, uh, you know, I suppose that he could just as easily have been sitting in the stands watching you turn on the wind light for, for, for an easy 10 K, but, um, I would have preferred that actually, but I'm not going to complain about the 10 grand. That was nice. No, and, and I assume it was paid cash money on the spot or that's, those are good days. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. And the, the, as you might imagine, given that crew, the, the resulting uh, celebration was memorable as well.
Yeah, I'm sure there's a crater there uh, where, where, where it occurred. <laughs> All right, um, Brenton Five Day from 2007. And I believe, I, I should have done a little bit of research on this. I think this is the year that um, West Palm was under construction and that there, was, there was not a Moroso Five Day. I, that sounds right. That, that would have been after, you know, I, so I went for the first 25 years and then pretty much stopped. Um, so I would not have been down there, but that, that all the timeline, I believe makes sense. It's gotta be right in that range. And we couldn't yeah. find anything from this season. So I'm going to say that this is the year that there wasn't a Moroso slash PBR, PBIR race. And I remember being in Florida that year and I remember being in Florida this year. So the two kind of align, we'll just say mm -hmm. 07 was the year of Moroso. Sure. Um, Bradenton five day winners, shocker, uh, Scotty <laughs> Richardson, Peter Biondo, never would have picked those two, yeah. uh, Tracy Sons, Jacob Elrod, Timmy Smith, I do remember this. Timmy was more or less the story of the five-day that year. Sure. That win on the last day was actually his second final. Levy runnered up to Scotty on day one, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, uh, yeah, Timmy Smith uh, showing out in Bradenton. And he always had success down there for a guy that was normally – this might probably the only time all season that he would quarter-mile race. Right. He, most of those guys would come to Florida and be a fish out of water, not Timmy. He always mm -hmm. had success at Bradenton. Um, dragster race that year, Big E got the win, uh, beat me in the final. I do remember that one. Um, so Edmund Richardson won the dragster race. I think that was on day one. They used to start Bradenton with the dragster race. And um, other news and notes to close out that season, Troy Williams Jr., another, you know, shocker, familiar mm -hmm. name, uh, yeah. finished the season with uh, a couple of $20,000 victories. I believe it was two within three weeks. The closer of those being in, uh, in Jackson, South Carolina. Sure. Yeah. In, in by now you're in mid December. So, uh, yes. Yeah, nice way to, uh, to wrap up what, uh, yeah, I don't know what he did prior to that, but I'm going to assume there was, uh, some early season success because that, that, that was probably, those seemed to be the years that the Williams brothers were you know, traveling all over the country, winning just about everything. All right. That pretty well wraps up 2007. Kevin, you got any shout outs, closeouts? It does. No, I, I think we're good. You know, uh, if we want to fast forward to modern times, you know, I know you may have discussed this with Dan, you know, there was an announcement from NHRA yesterday, which really uh, was just the thing to say that, you know, they're hoping to get back uh, to action by the 1st of August. You know, they've pushed back, you know, the Gainesville race is not going to happen now in June. That's been pushed back to September. Uh, you know, who knows? You know, obviously we, we've discussed this at length. There's so many unknowns right now, but, you know, let's just all hope here in the next month or so that, uh, you know, we're, we're back to some, some sorts of sense of normalcy and that uh, we can go racing and have national events uh, with fans here in the next, uh, you know, eight weeks or so. Yeah, no, that's um, Brian Loans and I discussed this to some extent on the, on the podcast that is probably, well, it's available now if you're listening on the, on the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast feed. And we both expressed some initial, I guess, disappointment in the, the lack of uh, like definition or clarity from mm -hmm. NHRA as to the schedule. But then when you sit back and think about it, it, I don't know how much good it does us to have a really detailed plan three months away in the most fluid situation of our lifetime. Like it seems... Yeah unavoidable that something is going to change perhaps for the better perhaps for the worse but yeah. some element of that multi-layered plan is going to have to be reevaluated 
at some point over the next three months. So it's almost like while we want the we want the date on the calendar, we're such a, a a culture of planners like that. There's some I don't know. There's some freedom in that in that discipline of knowing sure. like, hey, this is where we're going and when and, and beginning to get that plan. But I just don't I don't think that's realistic at this point to have anything set in stone. And ultimately, I doubt that it does us any favors. You know what I mean? It's almost like, yeah. do you do you get your heart set on this only to have it change? Again, maybe for the better, but I just think big picture, it's probably best to be as vague as possible right now. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes. I know the people that are working, it, it's become pretty much a 24-7 thing to keep up with the latest developments and, and try to come up with a clear path of what we can do to reopen. And um, yeah, again, we just trust that it's sooner rather than later. Yeah, so many moving parts. I do not uh, envy the job of the decision makers at not, all. So. Not in the least. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. I love doing these. I feel like we get a little bit more fluent and better with them every single week. We'll yeah. be back next week, I guess, to do 2008. You just want to keep rolling in order? Sure. All right. yeah, we, we, we will have at least another decade before things start to get uh, too frights. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to throw back to 2018 at any point, but um, I, I think we've got at least another half dozen or so of these. And uh, then, I don't know, maybe we can explore some other topics that uh, um, have, have long gone uh, ignored. So yeah, no, I, I enjoy it. These are fun. I think we've gotten some, some good feedback, so let's keep rolling. Sounds great. Kevin, thanks again for your time. Stay safe, my friends. Stay healthy. And uh, all of you, thank you for listening. You guys do the same. Uh, as I try to close with each week, uh, just keep in mind we're in this together. We're going to get through this together. We'll see you next week. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.